evening service, and of course, the choir tonight. No prayer service this week. There will be, however, coming in January, a church white elephant and gift service party. More details later. Andrea's uh, number um, is not in there. <laughs> Andrea is the content. So I'm sure you all had it. Offering envelopes for 19 are here on the choir table, so. This morning comes from Micah 5, read 1 through 9. Father, we praise you and thank you so much we were able to gather and remember our great gift to us, giving your son so that we might have salvation. And Lord, uh, we 
pray that as we contemplate your message today, that indeed we would rejoice being so thankful, Lord, that you have loved us with an everlasting love. We pray that uh, Christ may be exalted today in what is said and done, and we ask, Lord, that you would attend to our uh, needs as your people. Open our hearts and minds that we might know the truth of who you are and what you have done for us. We pray that uh, you would give us opportunity to witness of the Christ who saved us to our loved ones and to our families. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> And turn to number 200.
reading this morning is Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, reading 1 through 7. Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Demarius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them.
the wrong one. <coughs> 199. Okay, sorry. We sang that already.
our special from um, Sunday night. So we're going to turn.
Our text today is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. For the next few weeks, including today, I'm going to be dealing with the geography of Jesus' life and what happened to him in each of the locales of his ministry. Bethlehem, the birthplace, Egypt, the hiding place, Nazareth, the living space, and Jerusalem, the victory place. So that's kind of where we're going in a broad outline. Each one of these geographical locations has its own story to tell. And as we probe into the scriptures, the message they preach is one of profound wonder, spiritual import, if we have an ear to hear, what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Today I want to begin with the birthplace, the town of Bethlehem. And as we come, let's ask the Lord to be our teacher. Thank you, dear Christ, for the Holy Scriptures. From the ancient texts of old, you have announced foretold your coming, your birth. And also not only the first advent, but the second advent, which is yet to take place. But today as we look at the birthplace, as we look at Bethlehem and the import of your coming into our lives, into our world, the great creator becoming part of his creation, Lord, we are humbled even by the thought. I pray, Lord, that you will help us as we analyze and study the truth of these geographical places and what they meant in the life of Christ. And importantly, what it means for us as well as we contemplate you as our Savior and Lord. We thank you for what you're going to do in our lives. Send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> this morning we're looking from Luke chapter 2, the subject, the birthplace of Christ, uh, Bethlehem. You notice from your bulletin outline, the first thing was that, that this is an ancient city, an ancient city with a timeless future. Historically, Bethlehem is well documented in the biblical records. <clears throat> Actually, there were a number of towns named Bethlehem, but the one we are considering is linked with Judah and his ancestors. The Old Testament documents have some interesting things to say about this town. Originally, the name of this town was Ephrath, E-P-H-R-A-T-H, -E Ephrath, referred to as such in Genesis 38, verse 19, in a text which describes Rachel giving birth to Benjamin, the youngest of only two children that she had. And she died in childbirth, in this childbirth, and was buried in the surrounds of Bethlehem, the scripture says. Joseph was Benjamin's maternal brother. 
So she only had two children, Joseph and Benjamin, and she died at the birth of the second child. The story of Ruth in the Old Testament, the great-grandmother of King David, took place in, you guessed it, in Bethlehem. It was in the fields of this highland town where Ruth gleaned grain as a displaced Moabite who eventually gained the favor of Boaz and was married to him. And by the way, you can find Ruth mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, verse 5, that a Moabite would be in the line of the Christ is phenomenal in itself. And it is a foretaste, you see, of all the Gentiles that God brought into the kingdom of God. Bethlehem was also a place where it called civil war. Not, not known generally, but Civil war that cost the Benjamites 25,000 lives. And their town was burned with fire as a result of this. Only 600 Benjamites survived that civil war. But those 600 men survived, and so the town survived. But I think that Bethlehem of the Old Testament is most famous for being the birthplace of Israel's most illustrious ruler. And I'm referring to King David, found in 1 Samuel 16, verse 4. And this is why Luke, the author of our text, calls Bethlehem, verse 4 of our text, the town of David. And I think town is an accurate description because the total population of this town was only about 15,000. About the size of a pier. And it was built in the highlands at an elevation of 2,500 feet, 100 feet higher than the city of Jerusalem. And mainly it was a place for growing Long after David's kingdom had been fragmented into north and south, and just prior to Israel's doom of being taken captive by the Assyrians, Micah gave one ray of hope for Israel's redemption. And that's in his prophecy, Micah 5, verse 2 and following. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Now this prophecy of Micah was understood to mean the prediction of the birthplace of Israel's Messiah. 
We know this to be the case because when the Magi of the East came to Jerusalem in search for the one born king of the Jews, that was their wording, Herod was greatly troubled at that. So what did he do? Well, he summoned the chief priests and the teachers of the law to ask them this question. Where is the Christ? The word Christ means the anointed one. That's in Greek. In Hebrew, it would be Messiah. They both mean the same thing, the anointed one. So he asked the question, where was the Messiah to be born? And without a moment's hesitation, the religious leaders responded, in Bethlehem and Judah, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they quote the Micah 5 prophecy, which I just read. So, the religious leaders knew that Micah's prophecy pinpointed Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Christ child. Our text tells us how this prophecy came to fulfillment. Joseph was not from Bethlehem, but from Nazareth, verse 4. This is where he lived. This is where he had his carpentry business. So when Joseph consented to take Mary as his wife, even though she was already with child of the Holy Spirit, everything pointed to the baby being born in Nazareth, not Bethlehem. It seems logical. So how did God get Joseph with pregnant Mary to Bethlehem. Verse 1 of our text. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. That's for the census so, Joseph also went to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary. He was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, we've already noted that Joseph's genealogy traces his ancestry to King David, Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy that's there. Luke's genealogy, chapter 3, traces the ancestry of Mary and shows that she too was in David's royal line. So the return to Bethlehem is not so much a return to their her birth but rather a return to the patriarch, in this case King David, of whose lineage they belong. So, what I am saying is that the instrument God used to move Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born there in Bethlehem, according to Micah's prophecy, 
was a decree of Caesar Augustus. Don't you find that interesting? The Bible is true when it declares the king's heart, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And he, God, directs it. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar, his own confession concerning God was this. He, God, does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth, and no one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was saying, God does what he wants and no one can question God. No one can put him on hold for his actions or under examination. Daniel 4, verse 35. Quirinius, also cited here by you, was in office for two terms both of which involved the taking of a Roman census. This is unusual. His first governorship was from 6 to 4 B.C., before Christ. 6 to 4, age, year 6 to 4. His second governorship was A.D., after Christ, 6 through 9. Luke tells us that this was the first census order, verse 2, and in Acts 5, verse 37, which was also written by Luke, tells us of the second census, census which was AD 6. So God had his governor in place that was doing all this taking of the census where you count heads. Well, what's ours? Uh, United States is every 10 years, I think, we're supposed to have a census taken where people get their heads counted. The census guy shows up at your door, or he doesn't show up at your door, they send you a form to fill out. Well, what's the government doing? It's, it's counting its citizens. It's seeing who are legally capable of voting in our country as citizens. But what I'm showing here, brethren, is that the events of history are not the, amen, the events of men <clears throat> as much as they are the events of divine providence. History is, as it has been said, his story. It's his story, not man's story. The psalmist writes in 22, 28, Dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Or again, Psalm 47, verse 7 and following. God is the king over all the earth. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. We don't normally read these texts, do we? But we need to be 
are saying to us. I like that phrase. The nobles of the nations assembled for the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Caesar was called Augustus in our text. Augustus means the exalted one. But behind and above puny Augustus is the great exalted one, our God, our Savior. And it's a small task to get Caesar to issue a decree so that Jesus can be born in Bethlehem according to the word of God Almighty. Think a little An ancient city with a timeless future. For out of this humble highland town was born that shepherd of God whom Micah predicted would himself become the world's peace, Israel's peace. Now secondly, what is the the significance of this event. Well, firstly, as already noted, Jesus was born in the very city that God had prophesied would be the birthplace of Israel's Messiah. Whatever men may say about the humanity of Jesus and affirm with vehemence that he was only a man, we hear that all the time, no mere man can predict, let alone orchestrate, his own birth impossibility for a mere man. While Jesus was yet in the womb of his mother Mary, he was transported from one place to another by the will of his parents and in compliance with the decree of Caesar, which obviously had some required haste to it. Else why would Joseph have endangered his pregnant fiancée with arduous three-day journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Three days, wow. Well, that's precisely my point. Nothing short of a court order would have convinced Joseph to go to Bethlehem. I mean, humanly speaking. But he had a court order. He had a court order. Caesar had declared it. But remember that providence moves in our lives unseen by us, often appreciated by us, because it is unseen. But God is there, he's nonetheless there, and we are wise to consciously recognize him as the real power behind the events which affect our lives, be they good or bad. So Caesar makes his decree that you can be sure that providence is Second, we observe that the birthplace of Bethlehem established Jesus as the rightful heir, the rightful heir of David's throne. And the predicted anointed one of God whose destiny was to rule the people of God and the nations of the world. 
You remember that when Herod inquired of the birthplace of Messiah, the religious leaders stayed in, skip a beat in their reply that it was to be the town of Bethlehem. Thus these who later became the murderers of Jesus unwittingly acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah. Unwittingly. They didn't put the pieces together. Where's the Messiah to be? Oh, Bethlehem. Well, it's the same Bethlehemite out of the house of Judah. They later cried, crucify him. Crucify him. Not only so, but on another occasion, John records an account where Jesus was at the feast in Jerusalem, and the talk of the town was about Jesus and whether or not he was the Messiah. Messiah simply means the Christ. You know your point. But the hurdle, the hurdle that many could not overcome concerning Jesus was this business of the city of his origin. John 7, verse 27. We know where this man is from, the religious leader said. When Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him, and then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Boy, they just couldn't take that. Well, the temple guards never did arrest him. Why did they arrest him? Well, it's as the guards explained. No one ever spoke the way this man does. John 7, verse 46. They just couldn't see how his teaching aligned with the Pharisees' idea that Nonetheless, the vision of the people remained. Some said, surely this man is the prophet. They're referring to Deuteronomy 18, where God promised that a prophet would come for Israel like, like that of Moses. Others said, well, he's the Christ. Still others said, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem? the town where David lived. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. John 7, verse 45. You see, they didn't have all the facts, did they? They knew about Jesus living in Galilee and working in Galilee and so forth. So they, they're saying, how can he be the Christ? We know that the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. Well, guess what, guys? He was born at Bethlehem, but they didn't know that. So based on their ignorance, they are not willing to accept Jesus in his Messiah role. 
The context shows, verse 52, that the ones refuting Jesus as the Messiah on the basis of his origin were the Pharisees and the religious leaders who assumed, there it is, that Jesus had been born in Galilee. Not Bethlehem. Don't assume things, Gregor. Not when the scripture is so clear. It's there for the looking. It's there for the studying. They could have done a little better homework here. Galilee, not Bethlehem. Well, this blows an insurmountable barrier in their thinking, which they could not. They just couldn't get over. They knew their Bible, they knew about Micah's prophecy, they just didn't know about Jesus, nor did they take the time to investigate to see where he was actually born. Yeah, he comes from Galilee, he's a carpenter up there, you heard about that, so he's a Galilean, obviously he's a Galilean, he's not a Bethlehemite. Their own assertions. Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? That unwittingly acknowledged Jesus as their Messiah. Likely that some of these leaders were the very same people who informed Herod of the birthplace for the Messiah some 33 years earlier. When Herod said, well, tell me where the Messiah is going to be born. Oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So these guys knew their Bible. They just couldn't connect the dots. <coughs> we should also observe that when the Magi refused to return to Herod and report just where they had found the Christ child, Herod, remembering the time the Magi said the star appeared, which led them, and he calculated two years, and that's why we had this terrible slaughter of all the boy babies in Bethlehem and its vicinities, because Jared sat, or Herod sat there with his calculator and he figured, hmm, the Magi said, such and such a time to see that would make him about two years old. So if I kill all the two-year-olds in Bethlehem, two-year-old and younger, I'm surely going to get it. You have the prophecy of Jeremiah saying, A voice is heard in Rama, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What a bloodbath that must have been. Horrific as this slaughter was, Herod, like Augustus earlier, is found to be fulfilling the prophecies of God concerning his son. We may wonder why God permits wicked men to do these kind of things, but if I can just venture a little guess, the Bible talks about the Gentiles, St. Herod, Augustus, Pontius Pilate, Festus, Agrippa, others. It talks about the 
Gentiles as instruments of God's wrath against his disobedient people. Jesus warned those in Jerusalem, there will be great distress in the land and wrath against the people. They will fall by the sword and be taken prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Luke 21, verse 23 and 24. And there is also the truth that evil men, by their evil actions, are storing up wrath against themselves for the day of God's judgment. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will give to each person according to what he has done. Romans 2. We don't think like God. We say, God, why would you allow this to happen? And God's answer comes back, I'm allowing it to happen so that I have something by which to judge these wicked people. See, God's judgments are always just. We get what we deserve. Unless we're in Christ, then we don't get what we deserve. We get His mercy. But in addition to fulfilling these prophecies, we need to remember that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem established him as the rightful heir of King David's throne. The one destined to rule the nations. And the Herod's slaughter of the innocent, notwithstanding, Jesus was preserved safe was, and Herod was condemned by the judge who rules with that guy. You want to know what happened to Herod? He's eating a lot of words. God's justice might seem to be a little slow at times, but brethren, it's always right on schedule. Now, what can we learn from the little town of Bethlehem? Well, number one, Bethlehem means the house of bread. That's what the word means, the house of bread. We speak of the Midwestern American state's ability to produce millions and millions of bushels of wheat. These states are called the breadbasket of the world. Our country, the breadbasket of the world. This was Bethlehem's reputation, though localized, of course, when a famine hit Israel in the days of Ruth Naomi, her mother-in-law to be left Bethlehem believing that sojourning in Moab would mean better pickings than remaining in Bethlehem but it didn't happen that way did it? while in the foreign country Naomi's husband died her two sons died, one of whom was married to Ruth, the other married to Orpah, the other daughter-in-law. And in her own words, Naomi explained, Don't call me Naomi. Her name means pleasant one. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. 
what is, what is she saying? She goes on. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away. Fool. Think of it. She had us. <coughs> she had two adult sons, but the Lord, she says, has brought me back. Why would you call me, I'm still quoting her, why call me Naomi? Miss Pleasant, why would you call me Pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Ruth chapter 1, verse 22. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Taught the people of his day, do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, and he will give you on again the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. John 6. You know, like Naomi, we often concentrate our energies in providing food for our tables to feed the body. We live, we work, we seek for the material gratifications of the world. And once you couldn't get these things in Bethlehem, God's house of bread, Naomi deserted her religious moorings and she went sailing out into the world hoping that there she would find her fortune. Well, what she found was emptiness, deprivation, loss, bitter sorrow. The pleasantness of her soul was replaced with a bitter spirit. And God was blamed for it all. Though it was she who left Bethlehem, God, he left her. You will say, oh, well, but yeah, but the, let's not forget that there was a famine in Bethlehem. Well, famine or no, it was God's house of bread. Moab was the place of the world. The psalmist says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house. Think of house as that which is a permanent dwelling. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents, the temporary dwellings of the wicked. For the Lord is a sun and shield. In other words, he's warmth for the cold. He's air conditioning for the hot. The Lord bestows favor and honor no good thing does he withhold from those who walk, whose walk is blameless? Psalm 84, verse 10. Even in famine, and I say it this way, even in famine, it is better to be in God's house 
under the discipline, if need be, with God's people, than to be hobnobbing with the wicked of the world. Pleasures of sin last for a moment, and then the wicked perish. That's the way it is. This is why the wise man warned, do not set foot on the path of the wicked, or walk in the way of evil men. Avoid it, and do not travel on it. Turn from it, and go on your way. Proverbs 4, verse 22. Or again, in Proverbs 12, verse 7. Wicked men are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous stands firm. And most serious of all, the psalmist says, salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek out your People who, like Naomi, have a controversy with God. I'm talking about believers. They blame God for their bad misfortunes in life. But it is they who have forsaken God and not He, them. Things were going well. The Lord sent famine into their souls as a means to awaken them to their spiritual need, but all they wanted was bread for their table, not Jesus, the bread for their souls. So they sought fulfillment in the world, but they came back empty. God's people, God's church, God himself was deserted for these lesser But there's no salvation among the wicked. Better to be under the rod of God's chastening, stay in his house, than to hike off from the paths of the world which lead to destruction. I can't tell you the people that have done that. I know a lot of them. They were seen to be walking real good in the paths of righteousness. And then the allurement of the world kind of enticed them. Slipped away here, slipped away there. First, it was just a little missing of the services here and there, and then going more, and then they're gone. And I'm not talking about strangers. I'm talking about people who walk through the doors of our church. So Bethlehem was the city of nourishment, was the place of bread. It's where they could be taught the things. But secondly, Bethlehem was also the city of Israel's great king, David. But more importantly, it is the birthplace of he who is titled King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Without in any way ignoring the genealogical connection, Jesus had with David, the more important connection is that of David with Jesus. David himself, as a king, while king, 
acknowledged that there was one among his own family line who, though a descendant of his, was really his superior. was more, not only did he thick them, he wrote it down. Here's what he says, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the rest of the psalm, Psalm 110, is about God ruling over his enemies. Notice the logic of Jesus' application of this text, Psalm 110, when he talks to the Pharisees. Here's what Jesus, we're always safe, by the way, for a Jesus interpretation of an Old Testament passage. Here's his, here's his interpretation. Jesus said to the Pharisees, what do you think about the Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. So he said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? His son he calls Lord. For he says, Jesus is still talking here to the Pharisees. For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then, Jesus is still speaking here, listen to the logic. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And no one say a word in reply. Matthew 22, verse 41. Wow. It's kind of sometimes the Lord did reason with people and did do some brain teasers to stretch their thoughts and to challenge their wrong conclusions. great truth to grasp here is not, it is not that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the town of David. And is therefore heir apparent to David's throne. But rather, that David as a son of Christ the Lord, who is king over all, predates David as we read in the Micah prophecy. Out of you, Bethlehem, will come one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Micah 5, verse 2. That's the important thing. The Apostle John words it this way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word. Jesus is called the Word because he is the final expression 
spiritually illiterate world. And if you do not read Christ, if you don't read Christ, you will not know God. You will not learn of God. And if you do not learn of God and repent of your sin, then you'll be worse off than Naomi in the land of Moab. David's kingdom over Israel is not the kingdom which should concern us. Though God promised him a perpetual throne. The ongoing throne is taken up by Christ over his people and eventually over the world as he rules with a rod of iron till his enemies are subdued. And if you don't see Jesus as God's king, set first and foremost over the world you will think that this world is all there is to live for, and you will neglect your soul. Let me say it this way. This world is transitory. What do you mean by that? It's destined to perish with fire in the day of judgment. The world of the soul, however, is forever. How merciful of God that he entered our physical planet to be born a real human being so that he might break the power of our spiritual rebellion and ignorance and grant us bread for our souls. For our souls. That's the real message of that plan. Whatever David did as Bethlehem's favorite son is not enough. Why? Because he died. After his death, his kingdom was first divided into the north and south, then taken captive, then dispersed throughout Assyria and Babylon. And guess what? David's kingdom, humanly speaking, is no more. But the kingdom established by David's son, indeed by David's Lord, extends to every part of the globe. Jesus, the Savior, enjoy the fruit of this kingdom. If you don't know, you need to come to Christ. Come and feed on the bread of heaven, and you'll never be spiritually hungry again. It's the satisfaction that the world can never have. Lord, thank you for your great grace to us. The bread of heaven. feed on Christ, they will be nourished for eternity. But if they reject Christ, they will starve. They will die in their sin. They will perish in their sin. They'll be tortured for their sin for all eternity. World without end. All the sacrifice and torturing done to Christ will elude them. He paid it all. We sing in our song, Jesus paid it all. Yes, he did. But 
not everyone has Jesus. That's the miracle. So today, Lord, if there are those here that don't know Christ, may he find them today. May he draw them into his kingdom. May they see that in Christ, David's son, yes, David's Lord, there is salvation. And as Peter said, there is salvation in no other name under heaven. Lord, we need to be saved. Saved from our own thinking. Saved from our selfishness. Saved from our love of sin. Lord Jesus, magnify yourself this day. Save who you will. For your glory. Trinity, number 201. You knew I was going to pick this song, didn't you? <laughs> oh, little down of Bethlehem. 201 in the radio.
kids have a little play, a little pageant they're going to put on for us. It'll take 10, about 15 minutes or so. So I hope you'll stick around. We'll take a short break right now. When you hear the music, come back. I, I don't know, but I think we're probably going to move this pulpit out of the way. But just before that, <laughs> I have a presentation. Okay. <laughs> This isn't from me. This is, this is from Gornville Baptist. Uh, I'll keep a little distance here. I'm fighting a, I'm fighting a little head cold here. So, uh, Pastor, as, as is our tradition, um, uh, we have this opportunity to uh, really say thanks. So the gift is really nothing. It's to say thanks. We, we don't often remember to do that. But um, we very much appreciate uh, your faithfulness to certainly Thornville Baptist Church, but more than that, to, um, to God and to Christ and to the scriptures. Um, that's where we're grounded, and year after year we have the, uh, the pleasure and the, uh, the great privilege uh, of sitting under the ministry, and we appreciate you very much. So, Yeah. <laughs> 
Hello, hello.
town of Nazareth, there was a young virgin named Mary. Mary was kind and favored by the Most High. Greetings, you who are favored by the Most High. Do not be afraid, Mary, for I bring you great news of great joy, for you shall conceive and give birth to the Son of God, and you shall call Jesus. I the Lord to tell Joseph what the angel had told her. Joseph, Joseph, the angel of the Lord has come down to you. He said that I will give birth to the babe, a baby, and he will be the son of God, and I will name him Jesus. Wow, that's great news. I, <laughs> I just, I need some time to think. Hold on.
day, Caesar Augustus had issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That meant everyone had to travel back to the country they were born in. So Mary and Joseph packed up their bags and took a long trip to Bethlehem. When they reached Bethlehem, the time had come for Mary to have the baby. Joseph knocked on everyone's doors, pleading for a place for them to stay. shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord appeared to them. pondered these things up in her heart. Please stand and join us in singing the first verse of Silent Night.
joining us in our intended prayer. We wish you all a Merry Christmas. Andrew kept looking at me like I was him too. Oh, I did. Yeah. I got him.